All right, uh, we're going to continue on in our series on Isaiah. Um, we're going to we we did three and four last week, and we're just going to go ahead to six. Like I said, we're not going to cover every chapter in Isaiah. I'm not saying that Isaiah five is no good; it's great, um, but we're not going to spend you know a year and a half in the book of Isaiah. So we're just going to skip to Isaiah chapter 6. In some ways, Isaiah chapter 6 is one of the most famous portions of, of this book uh, because of the vision that Isaiah has. So we're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 6, <clears throat> starting at, the verse, at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without an inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank, thank you that your word is living and active that though this has traveled through the centuries, it has not lost any of its vitality. The sword has not lost its edge. It still cuts, divides. And we pray that we'd be pierced by it. We pray that our hearts would be soft. Our ears would be open. That we would be stirred by it and we would turn towards you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. It is your grace that we need, grace upon grace. We're so grateful you have more than enough. Amen. Uh, in some ways, this chapter feels like it should be the beginning of the book. Um, some people speculate and say it seems so clearly to be the beginning of the story that something went wrong. Um, this maybe this was the original beginning of the book and somebody found a few more prophecies and tacked it on at the beginning. Um, however, it worked as it does. This is the, the uh, glimpse that we have of the way that Isaiah was called to this ministry, this office of prophet. <clears throat> this is the 
the picture of his call to ministry. And it, it happens in quite dramatic fashion. Um, this is a vision. We assume this is a vision that if you, know, if you walked in the same room that Isaiah was in, you would not see the same thing that Isaiah was seeing. Um, this is coming at the end of an era of, of um, wealth, of success, relative peace um, in Isaiah, and, uh, in Israel, and Judah. This king Uzziah was a very successful king, but he's dying and there's this marked transition because this king was not all that he was supposed to be. Israel has not been all that it's supposed to be. And so as this era of, of wealth is ending, there is this sense of something else coming. And so Isaiah comes into the temple and he has this vision of of God seated on his throne. And the vision is so immense and, and overwhelming. You have to remember that for these people at this time, the temple in Jerusalem is the largest building that they can imagine. There are no cities that they can drive to and, and skyscrapers that they'd crane their neck at. This is the city in Israel in a lot of ways. And this is the building in Jerusalem. Most of these people don't live in a city. And so when they come to Jerusalem, they see the temple. It is, in many ways, the biggest building in the world to them. And so here's Isaiah's vision of this massive temple and the train of God's robe, the trailing edge of his robe, that fills the temple. It is this immense huge vision of God and it's overwhelming in the sensory way that it's filled with smoke. So he smells it. He sees it. He sees who knows how many angels zipping around with six wings covering their eyes and their feet and flying and hovering and their the, the cacophony of, of noise as they sing to one another back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if you're Isaiah and you're having this vision, it is not hard to believe the angels as they sing. It certainly would feel like the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response is natural. He sees it and he says, I'm a dead man. Uh, I cannot bear to be here. This is one of the things that uh, our culture has sold us short on as we have rightfully embraced how tender and, and gentle and humble is the love of Jesus for his people. We've also been the kind of people that make t-shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy and cannot imagine this kind of vision of God who is so terrifyingly, achingly holy, that you would be undone before him and tremble before him and say, I am going to die because of how terrifyingly awesome God is. But that's the, that's the wonder of what, what Jesus' incarnation means to us is that this is how magnificently holy, ferociously holy God is. That when you see him, when he's unveiled before you, it feels like you will explode from the inside out. That's how insufficient you are before God. And so Isaiah's response is right. I am going to die. He says, woe is me. I'm lost. It's over for me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
And then there's this moment where Isaiah is made able to stand before God without fear. One of the angels goes to the altar. He grabs a burning coal, the sacrificial altar, and he touches it to his lips. And he says, this has cleansed you. The thing that you are afraid of, oh, man of unclean lips, how can I speak for God or speak before God? That thing is cleansed. And so finally, God starts to talk. This is the first time in verse 8 that he has talked in this vision. He says, who will go for us? Speaking of himself. And Isaiah, now able to speak rightfully, can kind of pipe up and say, here I am. Send me. Send me. And a lot of times this is where we'd be comfortable stopping in this passage. It'd be nice in some ways to stop here in this vision. But this passage is frequently quoted in the New Testament at least five times directly. But it doesn't quote anything from verse 8 and before. It, It quotes what follows. He says, say this to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This passage will be quoted when Jesus teaches in parables and people don't understand. The gospel writers will pull out this section of Isaiah chapter 6 and say, this is what is going on. The people hear and they do not understand. And Isaiah's whole ministry, his call as a prophet, is to plainly speak the word to the people of Israel. In many ways, it's never been so plain as when Isaiah speaks as prophet. And yet God is telling Isaiah that his ministry will be in the speaking of this plain word. The hearts of the people will grow hard. They will not receive it. And this itself is a judgment. The word of God being spoken and rejected is a judgment on Israel. And the result is described. Isaiah can can barely understand, fathom the, the immensity of this judgment. He says, how long, O Lord? And God says, until there is smoking ruin left, until it's almost all gone because they have rejected me. This is it's a sobering vision. It's a sobering message. And here we have this same clear word spoken to us. And, and we are called just as the hearers of Isaiah's message originally, just as the hearers of Jesus' preaching in the Gospels, we are called to hear this very same word and not respond like Israel responded. We are called to not have the word provoke us to a hardness of heart, but we are instead called to hear the word and respond with repentance and surrender and a soft heart. And as I read this passage this week and and got ready to preach this, I thought, man, I can feel this in this pandemic season. You know, in many ways, me doing this, talking to a camera, it makes me hard hearted. 
And as we've been in this season of, of not being in this building, in this place together, figuring out alternative means of meeting, it feels the natural, the gravity of the orbit that we are in feels like pulling me away. Everything right now spiritually feels harder. The easier thing to do right now, the gravity of my life, the momentum of my life, the tides of my life are sweeping me away from God. And I think that if we were honest with each other, we could all acknowledge that to be true. What would be so easy right now in our life together as a people is to not be together. Has it ever in your life as a Christian been easier to say, it does not matter what I do on Sunday. It does not matter if I hear the word of God or if I do not. I care more about my plans for recreation, about my vacations, about my vocations, about my job, about a million other things. I'm locked in my house. The tides of the world are pulling me away. You know, as we look at the reality of our situation right now, the reality of this situation, we have to acknowledge that for everyone, all of us church people, Christians, are feeling this right now. Everywhere that we look, in every way that we can track, we know that people's engagement with church, with the word, is going down in this pandemic season. There is a big swell up at the beginning, and then every way that we can measure, it's been just a pretty much straight nosedive. We're tired. We are tired. It is hard to do life like this. And it seems like coming back to the word spoken plainly will do nothing to relieve the hardness for us. In many ways, you might be sitting there saying, I am like Israel. When the word is spoken right now, my heart seems to get harder. And my friends, brothers and sisters, as I thought about this and read this text, I was reminded of this work on spiritual life by a man named Richard Lovelace. And he, he writes and he says that revival is not meant to be a, a kind of random, sporadic, one-time, mega event on a, under a tent sometimes. But it seems that over the life of a Christian, over the life of the church, revival is a necessity, a normal part of the church's life. And so you and I are very likely in a place where we are saying our hearts have grown hard and heavy, we're tired, and what we need to confess together is that we need a revival. We need to be praying and asking God repeatedly, God, my heart feels so cold right now. Everything feels cold. And when the people of God are acknowledging that and confessing it, they are moving away from the judgment that Isaiah is warning against. 
Because I know this. I know that if you've been feeling what I've been feeling, the difficulty of it all, the strain of it all, the lethargy of it all, you may be tempted to be afraid about what is happening to you inside. And that fear will actually drive you from God and say, oh, I'm so ashamed of how, how cold I am and how hard-hearted I am. I'm so ashamed I don't even want to appear before God. But that is the opposite of the instinct that we should have. Instead, when we hear the word beckoning to us, we should turn and acknowledge it and say, I feel ashamed, I feel afraid, I feel cold, I feel hard-hearted. Seeing I do not see and hearing I do not understand. Help me. Help me. I need your help, God, to even respond to the word at all. And what this text holds for us is not just a word of judgment, but the seed of hope. Isaiah Isaiah says, how long, O Lord, will it be like this? And God describes this kind of wasteland that's coming for Israel because of the way they have turned away from God and not heeded his call. He says, though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Echoing in Isaiah's prophecy of judgment is that at the end of this judgment the ground has been blackened but a seed has been dropped in the earth and Israel's line still has a hint an inkling of hope and it's Jesus Isaiah can't name him cannot fully see him but it's Jesus that is the seed that is dropped in the ground. And so right now, as you are listening to the word, as you are maybe fearing or reckoning with the hardness of your own heart and wondering, is there any help for me? You are actually being cycled backwards back into the beginning of this chapter to the place where Isaiah was. You are standing before a God who is terrifyingly holy and you are saying the same thing that Isaiah has said at the beginning of the chapter. Woe is me. I'm a person of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I cannot stand before this God. My heart has been so hard and so cold toward this God. I cannot stand before him. Who will do something about this rock of ice, this granite in my chest that is my heart? And the same thing that happened to Isaiah is the thing that might happen to you. And the, in the prophecy, in the vision, an angel pulls a coal from the sacrificial altar and puts it to the lips of Isaiah. And Christian, when you look in your mind and when you see that coal, would you now understand that that coal is Jesus Christ? That at the very heart and the life of the sacrificial altar, the heat of the holiness of that sacrifice and atonement, it has been pulled out and placed on your lips. 
That from the, the seat of God's holiness, the coal, the life, the energy of that thing itself is the, is the sacrifice, is the atonement of the one who is the perfect sacrifice. The heat that radiates off of that coal is the very life of God himself. So that when you part your lips and you plead with God, would you make me right? It is not just a coal that is touching your lips. It is the heat of the Holy Spirit spirit that is applied to your lips so that when the people of God would say, woe is me, how can I stand before God? It is God himself who draws close to you and pours out more grace that we, the grace showered, grace rich people who need yet more grace are given the application of the life of the Holy Spirit. Because it was never the coal in the vision that was magic. We don't need to go find the secret pot of coal somewhere to make us feel better. It was always God who made Isaiah able to stand before him. It was never the coal that was magic. It was the will of God. It was the miracle of God. It was the grace of God for Isaiah. It is the same God. It is the same miracle. It is the same gracious act that puts his name on your lips. It is the heat of the Holy Spirit that purged and cleansed Isaiah and it is the heat, the life of the Holy Spirit that passes in your lips and is the air that you breathe. So if you are this morning hearing the word pass over you, the word wash over you, and you are saying, I barely even feel this thing. It feels like I can hear but not understand. This word is for you, not as a word of condemnation or of judgment. It is a word that says that healing, deliverance, revival is on its way for you. If you would make the same confession that Isaiah would make, you would find that God will come even closer to you than he did for Isaiah. It is not just the coal that would touch your lips. It is the very lifeblood of God himself. And it will be your life, your breath. And it's also a warning to you. This is the way the word has acted in people's hearts and minds for a long time. You can hear the word. And if you do not attend to it, your heart can grow harder and harder and harder in resistance to it. It's just what happens. It's not that the word brings death into us. It's the death that rattles around inside of us by birth, by nature and inclination. The constant rejection of the word will harden your heart. That's why later in scripture, Paul will pull from the story of Israel and he'll say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. If today you are tired and you are tired of being tired and you are tired of talking about how tired you are of being tired. If your heart is so hard and you are so sick of it today, you are hearing the Lord's voice. 
This word is his voice. You are hearing it definitively. Whether you feel it or not, you probably don't. But today you are hearing his voice. Do not harden your heart because he wants you to live. The seed that Isaiah saw from a distance, we can see with clarity. It is the man, it is God, it is Jesus Christ. The hope of Israel, the hope of his people. He is our hope and he has in his hands more than enough grace for you and for me. Even in this pandemic season, even in this season of fatigue, even in this season of drifting away, he has come close and he will come, come yet closer still. If we would but open our lips and say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, revive my heart. Come Lord Jesus and make me whole. The coal is still burning white hot and has yet enough heat even for you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word, for your word. We thank you that though we were dead in our trespasses, you raised us to life so that even if we feel dead right now, you have been in the resurrection business all along. So even if our lips are dripping with uncleanliness, you have been the one who sanctifies and atones. You have always been the perfect sacrifice for us, always quick and ready to give mercy, always happy to provide atonement, always willing that the coal would touch our lips and that you would make us clean. And we are so grateful that we are the people who have been able to gather around your table in many times and many places and that you have applied to our lips the thing that the sign signifies, that you have been able, you have enabled us to feed on your very life by the power of your Holy Spirit. And even today, if we have wandered away, been pulled out to sea, been sinking deeper and deeper into hard-heartedness. You have still yet enough grace for the saving seed of Israel to bring life to barren wasteland. God, I pray that everyone who is feeling dead this morning would find their life in you. For the first time, for the millionth time, you have more than enough. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would believe it and we would respond. I pray that you would revive us individually, that you would revive us corporately as a church, that you would revive us as a valley, as a city, as a region, as a nation, that you would bring life where now there is only wasteland, that the seed of Israel would blossom here we would eat from the fruit of your table. You can accomplish this, Lord Jesus, by the power of your might and the tender excellence of your mercies and your grace. 
Would you do it now in us, Lord Jesus? We need you. We are so grateful that you meet us in our need. There is no one like you, Lord Jesus. We have seen the Lord high and lifted up. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus. Amen.